We inform. Religious freedom is about people of faith being able to live out their faith, live out their convictions, no matter where they are. We equip. This is a battle of worldviews. And we activate. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. This is AFA at the Core on American Family Radio. Welcome to AFA at the Core. So glad to be with you today on the American Family Radio Network. That's what you're listening to now is the American Family Radio Network. The show is AFA at the Core, and I'm your host, Walker Wildman, each weekday here on American Family Radio. Our website is AFR.net, AFR.net. And when you go there, my podcast is right there on the homepage, as a matter of fact. The AFA at the Core podcast, you can uh, view it, listen to it there at our homepage, AFR.net. Also on the AFR app, uh, those are two quick and easy ways for you to keep up with the show, AFR.net and the American Family Radio app. Check out the AFA at the Core podcast page. We are live streaming our video on YouTube at the AFA at the Core page and on Facebook on the American Family Radio Facebook page. And uh, so there's a couple other ways for you to find us on social media platforms. And as I've mentioned before, we are actually building our own video platform here at American Family Association. So here in a few months, we'll be up and running with our own video platform, very easy to use, very simple, where you can watch shows like AFA at the Core and other content on our own video platform. So we'll be cancel-free or or immune from canceling there on that platform. So that's what we're working on here at AFA. Our verse of the week is out of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. But before I get there, I want to read from chapter 1 of Proverbs, which uh, Proverbs, the first verse says, this is a Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. It goes on in verse 4 to uh, really the first several verses. The first seven verses talk about the purpose of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, uh, verse 4 specifically says that the purpose of Proverbs is to, quote, give prudence to the simple, knowledge, and discretion to the youth. Um, So that's uh, the purpose of the book of Proverbs, amongst many other purposes. But chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will be added to you. So this could be applied to a father-son relationship. It could be applied to another type of uh, authoritative figure relationship or a mentor relationship uh, where we need to not forget the teachings of those that come before us, especially those who teach godly wisdom into our lives. American Family News is up and running. That's our new website for our news team. AFN.net is where you can check it out. The website, the app, look uh, top-notch, first-class Our IT department uh, put that together, built that website. And so what was once known as onenewsnow.com is now American Family News. And their URL is AFN. It's very easy to remember. AFN.net is the URL for 
our news department so you can find the latest news there from a Christian perspective without having to rely on these mainstream media conglomerates. We're going to have Rick Green on here in about 10 minutes to talk about the Convention of States. Some of you have heard of that. Many of you probably have never heard of that. Uh, But we're going to ask Rick Green, who's an expert on the Constitution and our founding fathers. We're going to question him about the Convention of States and what he thinks about it. We're going to ask him questions about it, questions that you and I might have. But before we do that, I want to get to a few things. Uh, This is out of... This is out of LifeSite News. Uh, they had a a conference on August 4th with various experts when it comes to uh, the medical field. And they were really talking extensively about concerns that these experts have as it relates to the COVID shot. And... Out of this entire presentation, which I watched watched most of it this morning, uh, one part of it really stood out to me because what we've been hearing, especially recently, is not only should not only are the public health officials encouraging vaccination, or in this case, the shot, uh, because it's not really behaving like a traditional vaccine, so it's not really accurate medically to call it a vaccine, it's more of a shot, a therapeutic. Um, but the shot, uh, we've we've seen all the experts on the public officials and the politicians telling everybody to get the shot. Well, uh, one post I saw recently, as of yesterday, was a certain public health officials encouraging pregnant women, women bearing children, that they as well need to get the shot, no questions asked. The post from the CDC specifically said that all, all, no no caveats, all pregnant women need to get the shot, and they need to get the shot immediately. That was the post from the CDC. So I started digging around, like, what, what studies do we have on any potential side effects from pregnant women getting this shot? Because I want to know myself. What is the side effects, if any, for pregnant women women getting the shot? So we have a clip here. This is from uh, this LifeSite News conference that was held last week. And the doctor here that you're going to hear is uh, Dr. Michael Yeadon. He is a um, he has his Ph.D. in respiratory pharma pharmacology. He also used to serve. He's the former vice president and chief scientist for allergy and respiratory at Pfizer. Yes, the the pharmaceutical company that produced one of these shots, he used to be a vice president there and a chief scientist over a certain department there or a certain category. So this this fellow has a lot of experience, over 32 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, and this is him speaking about his concerns uh, when it comes to pregnant women, women getting this experimental shot. So, three things to tell you about my concerns about the impact of these vaccines in reproductive health, fertility and pregnancy. The first thing is so obvious that you'll agree with me when I tell you, and that's we never, ever give experimental medicines to pregnant women. Why do we not do that? Well, you probably will have heard of the word thalidomide. 60 years ago, 
through, I think, a, an ignorant failure of medicines regulation. Women were exposed to a new product for morning sickness called thalidomide, and it led to at least 10,000 birth malformations. And we didn't know at the time that the studies they were doing at the time simply wouldn't pick out um, thalidomide as a, a sort of toxin in the womb. And I think it also taught us that babies are not safe and protected inside the uterus, which is what we used to think. Well, that's it. That's Dr. Michael Yeadon. And the what I want what I want you to pull from that is that historically, according to Dr. Eden, uh, we as a society, especially in the U.S, we have never given experimental medicines to pregnant women. So the question is, why is this different? Uh, the thought and the practice of, of giving experimental medicines to pregnant women with no long-term studies has, has, has not been done. And here we are with an experimental shot encouraging all pregnant women, no matter the circumstance, that they've got to get the shot. And, and, and if, if you're wondering, well, what do the studies say? Well, there's really not many. There's not actually any long-term studies that talk about the potential side effects to the shot uh, as it relates to pregnant women. So it's, I, I believe it's, it's reckless, it's dangerous for public health officials, for anyone to say definitively with, beyond the shadow of a doubt with no caveats that all pregnant women in the U.S. have to get the shot, they need to do it now, or their life's at stake. Because the science, there actually is no science. There are no studies, no long-term studies, that talk about the potential side effects of uh, this. I mean, you you can't even uh, take uh, certain over-the-counter meds when you're pregnant. I mean, you, you virtually are encouraged to not take really any medicines when you're pregnant. You can't take uh, many medicines that help with common headaches. Uh, if you do, you have to very you have to limit them. You have to make sure you get the right dosage. You have to call your doctor. Um, you can't even even on over the counter vitamins. At the bottom of the vitamin bottle, it says if you're pregnant to consult with your doctor before taking the vitamins. And those are just everyday vitamins that that haven't really shown any harm. Um, and so there's all these uh, all these hesitancies and warnings about making sure you consult with your doctor before taking something when you're pregnant. Um, and then here we are as a society forcing this shot on pregnant women without any long-term studies. And so this is very, very concerning, uh, according to Dr. Michael Yeadon, uh, who has his PhD, also used to work for the pharmaceutical company Pfizer. Uh, so that story is, is circulating. And we've heard the same thing from other doctors who are concerned about uh, getting uh, – giving this shot to people who are pregnant. I saw a headline the other day, and you talk about gaslighting. I mean, the media has been gaslighting America when it comes to this uh, coronavirus. I read a headline the other day from a local outlet um, that, that really where this story originated from about all pregnant women needing to get, to get the shot. Well, I click on the article, and I go down to the bottom, which they always include the statistics at the very bottom that nobody reads. I go down there, and here are the numbers that I found. According to the CDC, there have been over 36 million cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. since this whole thing began 18 months ago, or over 18 months ago. 
36 million cases. Of those 36 million cases, there have been 124 fatalities of pregnant mothers. Out of 36 million cases, there have been 124 fatalities of pregnant women. And that's that's with COVID. That doesn't say that COVID caused that fatality. They just happened to have COVID when they passed away and when the baby was lost. And so you look at the numbers there and you have to ask yourself, is it worth taking this risk with this shot that there are no long-term studies on? Um, is it worth taking that risk when you look at 36 million cases and 120 uh, fatalities amongst pregnant women, I would argue uh, it is not worth taking the risk until there's more studies out there uh, for people to have and for people to consume uh, so they are confident that they are making the right decision for themselves. The Something else we're doing here at American Family Association that I'm very encouraged about is our By Design uh, project. Our By Design project is aimed at strengthening uh, biblical marriages, and aimed at encouraging uh, couples, married couples, to uh, make sure their marriage honors Christ, that they're being committed to their spouse and being committed to God with their marriage and their relationship and their parenting, because one of our core values here at American Family Association is marriage and family. That's one of our core values. And uh, on, this my, on this By Design uh, project, one thing we're doing is we're doing a monthly challenge. We're doing a monthly challenge, and this month we are asking you and your spouse uh, to commit to our marriage covenant that we've put together. The vast majority of this marriage covenant, if not all of it, is pulled directly from Scripture, from Ephesians uh, chapter 5. We also have a little bit from uh, Matthew 19. And so this marriage covenant is centered on strengthening your marriage in Christ. Because uh, when we have strong marriages, we in turn have strong families. Uh, we have children that thrive and succeed uh, better. And so all of this is aimed at strengthening families, not just strengthening families, but strengthening them uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. Go to afa.net forward slash by design. That's afa.net forward slash by design. And you can read the marriage covenant there. Check out our videos our by design podcast and all other information about that project at afa.net forward slash by design. We'll be back in just a few minutes. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. My name is Abraham Hamilton, the third, and this is the Hamilton minute. BBC's women's hour asked social media followers to submit opinions about the best way to inform teenagers about age-appropriate pornography. The Women's Radio Magazine program, which has been on the air since 1946, tweeted, what's the best way to inform teenagers about porn? Should there be age-appropriate porn? Corruption and depravity know no bounds. Keep in mind, this is a women's program calling for the objectification of women and the corruption of children. The strong push for the sexualization of children continues. Society has collectively become futile in their thinking due to darkened hearts. Listen each weekday from 5 to 6 p.m. Central for The Hamilton Corner with Abraham Hamilton III, public policy analyst for the American Family Association. 
This is Raising Godly Girls Minute with Patty Garibay of American Heritage Girls. How many times have you been encouraged to join an organization or volunteer with a nonprofit because it will look good on your resume? Good news, many of today's youth are less motivated by the notches on their resume and more motivated by their internal drive and passions. The same may be true for your daughter. Philippians tells believers not to serve selfishly, but to look to the needs of others. To cultivate a servant's heart within your girl, consider what my friend Tim Elmore calls exposing rather than imposing. Instead of imposing service requirements, expose your girl to the needs of the community. She may surprise you with the type of service project she's motivated to create as she looks to the needs of others. We are all called to raise up the next generation of Christian leaders. You can learn more about empowering girls through the love of God at RaisingGodlyGirls.com. I'm a widow. I've worked for a bank for 31 years, and I've been retired now for 10 years. Myrtle Norris comments on her experience with the AFA Foundation. I had a lot of financial questions, and Dan Celia was, um, he answered my questions, and he helped me with a lot of decisions that I made. And then the charitable gift came up, and he explained that to me. I decided to get it, and I'm sure glad I did, because I know now that money is in a place that I know God wants it to be, and also get my monthly income from it. I believe in the AFA and what they're doing, because they're working for us. Learn how the AFA Foundation can work for you. You can contact the AFA Foundation through Facebook on our website, afafoundation.net, or call us at 800-326-4543, extension 345. Thank you for supporting the American Family Association. AFA at the Core podcast are available at AFR.net. Back to AFA at the Core on American Family Radio. Welcome back to AFA at the Core here on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is AFR.net. You can go there and check out the AFA at the Core podcast there on our website, AFR.net, and on the AFR AFR app. I wanted to let you know about a case, uh, give you a little bit of, of commentary on a case that was discussed yesterday as it relates to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, yesterday, News broke that the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, more specifically Justice Amy Coney Barrett, denied, here's the headline, uh, Justice Amy Barrett denies appeal from Indiana University students fighting COVID-19 vaccine mandate. And it goes on to say that Barrett denied the request without consulting the full court. Well, there's a little bit of context here, a little bit of backstory that I wanted to provide that I'm just now learning as of about uh, 30 minutes ago. Um, this is not um, the fu- the full story is not what the media is reporting. So apparently, from what I'm hearing, uh, these students at Indiana University that were appealing for an exemption on this uh, shot mandate with the university, uh, they had actually already received a religious exemption before this case ended up at the Supreme Court. So apparently Indiana University, this is from the reports that I'm hearing, uh, Indiana University had already granted these students a religious exemption, um, which would explain why Judge Amy Coney Barrett, or Justice Amy Amy Barrett, 
denied the uh, uh, the case to be heard before the full Supreme Court. Uh, it's possibly because uh, there was no damage or the damage was resolved before the case got to the Supreme Court. So we'll, we'll check into that a little bit more. Uh, but I know a lot of people were a little concerned about that case coming out of Indiana to the Supreme Court yesterday. Uh, so there's a little bit of backstory there. Um, uh, that, that, that many in the media are leaving out the full context of that ruling and why it was ruled uh, the way it was. And, and a, a legal expert from a, a very well-known law firm that I heard uh, uh, privately earlier said that he's not at all disappointed in uh, Justice Barrett, that this was actually a, a logical, good ruling for her to send it back or deny to hear it before the Supreme Court because of the damages that were done uh, were remedied by granting those students a religious exemption. Uh, so we'll continue to keep an eye on that. Uh, Bobby, do we have Rick yet? All right, we got Rick Green on the line with us. Rick Green's a well-known uh, AFR guest. He's head of Patriot Academy and the Torch of Freedom Foundation. He's also done some co-hosting and some guest hosting here on the network. Rick, glad to have you with us on the show. Hey, Walker, good to be with you, brother. Well, Rick, I, I wanted to have you on because I've had people question me about uh, the what is called the Convention of States, and that there's there's either there, there's really two crowds out there. Uh, well, there's probably three. <laughs> there's there's the crowd that literally knows nothing about the Convention of States. They've never heard of it before. They don't know what we're talking about. Then there's the crowd where they've kind of heard people talk about it, but they don't know what they what to think about it. And then there's the avid Convention of State crowd. Um, and they think we should be talking about the Convention of States 24-7-365 here on the radio <laughs> network. Um, but I wanted to have you on to get your opinion. Give us a little backgrounder. Uh, first, starting off, what is the Convention of States? Yeah, I mean, let's uh, let's just put it in the context of why the founders put it into the Constitution. It was uh, not necessarily a last-minute addition. It was actually something that they thought was going to be in there, and somehow, and when it came out of committee, it had been reversed. And what I mean by that is the the way that we amend the Constitution. So there are two ways in the Constitution that you can allow for an amendment. We got 27 amendments so far to the Constitution. Um, those amendments are either proposed by Congress itself. So the House and the Senate both have to propose an amendment and then it goes to all 50 states and 38 of the states have to ratify that proposal for it to actually go into the Constitution. That's why it's so rare that it happens because you got to have these super majorities both in Congress and among all 50 states. So that's the main way that the Constitution has been amended so far. But right at the end of the Constitutional Convention back in 1787, George Mason got up literally the you know last couple of days. Everybody was ready to go home. And he said, wait a minute, I see a mistake here. Uh, we have left out the second way to amend the Constitution, which is without Congress. The states do it totally by themselves. And he made a pretty good argument. He said, look, you know, if the, if the Congress gets out of control, if the federal government starts doing things that we never gave it the power to do under the Constitution, a very limited document with very limited powers for the federal government, if they ever just, you know, willy nilly steal those powers and start doing new things, they're certainly not going to originate an, an amendment to overrule themselves. So we have to be able to do that through the states. And so that's that's what Convention of States is. When he said this and proposed it, it was a mic drop moment. There, there was literally no opposition. It was unanimous. And they added that language back in. And uh, that language is literally called a convention for proposing amendments. And uh, so it doesn't mean that 
state legislators all get together and amend the Constitution on their own. It means that they get together and they propose an amendment. They replace Congress, basically, for that first step. And if at the convention, 26 states uh, think something is worthy of, of being proposed and sent back to all 50 states, uh, then they do that. And then all 50 states have to meet separately in their own legislatures to amend. Now, I know that's a lot. I threw a lot out there, yeah. but that's kind of the history of it. That's why the founders thought it was important to have it was if the federal government ever gets out of control, you got to have a way to put them back in their box. And they're certainly not going to be the ones to put themselves back in the box. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's why the, um, uh, the, the senators and the House members that talk about they're going to pass a term limit <laughs> bill. Uh, that would be they would have to all agree uh, to pass term limits on themselves, which we know yeah. is not going to happen. Uh, exactly. At least, at least it's very low probability. But back to the convention of states. Let me ask you this. Uh, so let's say 38 states. I'm sorry, 34 states uh, call or agree. Both both bodies uh, within that state agree to a convention of states. Uh, can they then meet, or would would the U.S. Congress have to approve first of the meeting of the gathering? There's really no role for Congress at all in this in this whole thing. Uh, you know, there are some who say, well, Congress gets to set the date because of some certain particular phrases there in, in in Article Five, and they could actually be the one to set the location and the date. Uh, but but there's no it's a ministerial act. In other words, there's no option there. There's no choice for Congress to make uh, whether or not um, uh, to allow for the meeting. So you hit the you hit the nail on the head. The number is 34. 34 states would have to call for the convention. And that means simply the House and Senate in in a state would have to adopt a resolution saying we want to have a convention of states for proposing amendments. Uh, 15 states have done that so far under this specific call that, that that's been worked on for about the last you know eight or nine years, and um, and the governors have nothing to do with it. It's entirely the legislature that calls for it. And once it hits 34, then that meeting will take place, and and uh, states can send as many people as they want. You know, they can send one person to represent their state, or they can send 50, but they only get one vote. So their and, delegation and that they say, send has to agree. And when you say the states, the the state legislative bodies would decide who their delegate is or who their delegates That's right. are. That's right. Okay. And most likely, it would be legislators. I mean, based on the you know conventions and 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 you know uh, continental congresses and other gatherings of of the states it's almost always been some form of a of either all state legislators or a mix of legislators and judges and maybe former elected officials and uh so i would expect that that most states and and some of the states even actually when they pass their resolutions they actually specifically put in their uh, resolutions who not not the person it would be, but that it would be comprised of, say, you know, two House members, two Senate members, something like that. Uh, uh, Rick, when you when you look at where we are now as a country in 2021, um, really a statehood and the importance of states and their authority and and their power has really been overlooked and in many cases diminished through the court system. Um, but uh, our founding fathers intended for states to basically run themselves to a large extent. Uh, but when you look now, everything's about Washington, D.C. and what, what Congress and the really not even Congress, what the executive branch says. I mean, the executive branch now wields so much power. Uh, talk a little bit about really how our founding fathers intended for the states to take the primary role uh, and lead when it comes to governing uh, their territory. Yeah, they, they designed really a brilliant— um, system of federalism, a, a unique system of federalism where 
Congress's role, the, the federal government's role, was to be really small. I mean, there's only 17 enumerated powers in the Constitution and the, and the 27 amendments, and that's all the federal government's supposed to do. Obviously, it's doing hundreds, thousands of things uh, that it does not have constitutional authority to do. But had it stayed small and dealt with national defense and the borders and the very specific things that only the federal government can do, then each state would be able to keep its own unique personality and you could vote with your feet and move to a state that reflected your values or reflected the environment you wanted to live in. Unfortunately, we've gotten in, in this mindset of, of really the whole nation being the exact same and that federal mm. law will make us all the same and that every community be the same. And when you have San Francisco running the federal government, which is what you've got right now, um, then that mentality, that set of values, they're going to try to force that on every single state in the country. And that's why we're so split and, th and, and things are so hateful right now is because we're trying to do this one size fits all. We're trying to be one government, one federal government yeah. uh, for everything instead of 50 state governments doing most things and the federal government only doing, doing a few things. So I don't think we survive, honestly, Walker, if we don't if we don't flip this thing back to the way the founders designed it and, and, you know, I think we need to stay together as a country. We can't, you know, we can't handle China and a lot of the international threats if we break up as a country. So I believe we, we've got to fight for America to stay together, but I don't think we can stay together if we keep trying to do this one size fits all thing. We've got to let Texas be Texas, Mississippi be Mississippi, California be California yeah. and not say, okay, if California wants to live in la la land, fantasy land and have laws that say crazy <laughs> things about, you know, sexual parts and everything else. Um, okay, well, if y'all want to live in fantasy land, that's your choice, but you can't force don't other make states us. to live in that. Yeah, don't make us exactly. live in fantasy land with you. Hey, speaking of the one, the, the attempted one-size-fits-all approach, and I can't think of the legal definition, but you're going to help me out here. There, there's We've seen many federal judges across the country in the past few decades uh, where, where these district federal judges issue these blanket rulings. Uh, these rulings that apply to other states that aren't even within their jurisdiction. Um, yeah. And that really, to your point, has really damaged the entire many laws. I mean, you look at, um, you look at, uh, uh, we've had, uh, I, I can't think of a specific case. You, it has to do with illegal immigration. You've got the DACA case. You've got uh, cases on uh, uh, natural marriage amendments that were going on back before a burger fell, where you had over 30 states pass these constitutional amendments declaring marriages between one, one man and one woman. So there's all kind of issues that have been litigated at the uh, district court level for these federal courts. But you had these, these uh, judges, and we had it, remember uh, during the Trump administration, a Hawaii judge uh, right. struck down, I think it was one of his travel bans, uh, maybe for the Middle East, for terrorist-prone countries, uh, this Hawaii judge struck it down, but didn't just strike it down for like his district, but he struck it down for the entire U.S. That is not – talk a little bit about the role of federal district judges and how they've really gone to where they rule for other districts as well, which is really not how they were intended to rule. Well, in fact, I'll say it more generally. I mean, the entire federal judiciary is so out of control. Uh, they, they have become – really the a three-headed monster instead of instead of applying the law that was made by the congress and executed by the president the the court has essentially decided to do all three itself and alexander hamilton warned us in the federalist papers you know initially he said you'll never have to worry about your liberty from the court but then he gave the warning he said 
I mean only if the court stays in its proper place. But if it ever gets over into the other two branches and starts making law or enforcing law, then you would have everything to fear from the court. And that's where we are at this point, because the, the court is really why the federal government is so out of boundaries right now. It used to be that the court would slap down the Congress or the president if they got outside of their constitutional authority. That's one of their proper roles and proper jobs. And in the 1930s, with the switch in time to save nine and FDR and the court packing threats and all that, the court just flipped. I mean, literally turned on its head. And the same judges that had been saying, no, you can't do a federal minimum wage. There's nothing in the Constitution that allows for that. No, you can't do regulation of meatpacking plants. There's nothing in the Constitution that allows for that. Same judges turned around just a few years later and said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Commerce Clause. We'll just let you do it through the Commerce. And they started creating all these loopholes and added power to the federal government. And so now you've got this godlike complex of all of these federal judges. So a district judge, one district judge in one little area of the country, as you're saying, will often decide that with the stroke of their pen, they can strike down what Congress is doing or they can uh, literally rewrite a law or, or look at all of these states where the states have said, you know what, this $300 unemployment supplement every week is preventing people from going to work. I mean, common sense tells you if you pay people as much to stay home or almost as much as it would be to go to work for eight hours a day, they're going to stay home. That's the nature of man. We're lazy. And so um, (laughs) these states that have said, no, we got to stop that because it's killing our economy. We have these federal judges stepping in and saying, we're going to make you do that, even though even though you're the policymaker, the governor or the legislature, whoever it was. So, yeah, I mean, they're they're out of control. There's no doubt about it. The court's the biggest problem. And it's part of the reason I'm an advocate, became such an advocate of the Convention of States is because it, it, it's not true that when the court rules and, and I don't mean a district judge now, I mean, even the U.S. Supreme Court, that is not the final say. Uh, the yes. federal government does not have the final say. State legislators are the most powerful members of the entire national government when they use the power given to them under the Constitution to overrule the federal government through an amendment to the Constitution. And we did it with the 11th Amendment, and that was the founding fathers that did that. They overruled a Supreme Court decision, and we should be doing it much more often, and that would put the court back, I mean, the uh, entire Congress back in its proper place. The, the, The term I was looking for is nationwide injunction. That's what these federal courts do across the country is they issue these nationwide injunctions Uh, which tie up the entire legal system all over one judge. One judge and one district can tie up. And and Bill Barr, the attorney general under Trump, he warned about this. And he actually issued a memo to all U.S. attorneys uh, warning them about these dangerous nationwide injunctions, uh, which should not be allowed. Well, we're talking about the Convention of States with Rick Green. And we'll be back in just a few minutes with more of AFA at the Core. Author Joy Lucius. I could not believe that out of 1.5 million children that I heard only two names that day, and they were the names of the same two little girls whose picture was hidden in my purse. Hear the incredible story that inspired the American Family Association novel, Rose and Odette, Unknown Children of the Holocaust. Visit afajournal.org. Our culture claims science and the Bible are mutually exclusive, but Dr. Brick Lance says science actually supports biblical morality. 
Unfortunately, pastors and leaders struggle to find resources to help cover complex moral issues in a church setting. In the August edition of the AFA Journal, Dr. Lance shares a free resource to help teach the truth about bioethical issues. Read Faith and Science, Not Mutually Exclusive, and sign up for a free trial subscription at afajournal.org. Hi, I'm Will Addison, and on behalf of American Family Association, we would like to invite married couples to participate in this month's By Design Challenge. It's simple, but profound. Go to afa.net slash bydesign and sign a petition that expresses your commitment to your God-given marital covenant. While there, you will see a PDF file that will allow you to print out a covenant document for you to sign and date as a symbol of the promise you made before God to your spouse. Marriage was created by God for His glory. No wonder the enemy fights so hard to destroy it because he hates anything God creates. Go to afa.net slash by design to be encouraged and reminded that our marriage is God's marriage and it's worth fighting for. One man, one woman, for life. For life. To participate in this month's challenge, visit afa.net slash by design. For American Family Radio, this is Gateways to Better Education. I'm Eric Buell. Prayer is so important that even Jesus prayed regularly. Think about that. He's fully God and fully human, but spoke with his heavenly Father regularly in prayer. When you pray, do you just treat God like a genie, hoping he'll grant your wish and make your life easier? Speaking from his humanity in John 5:19, Jesus said, The Son can do nothing himself but what he sees the Father do. Here's an idea next time you pray. Ask God a question. For example, if you have children in public schools, ask God how you can be a blessing to your children's teachers. Ask, Lord, what are you doing in her life, and how can I be a part of what you're doing? You can be a gateway to better education in your schools this year. For help, visit gogateways.org. That's gogateways.org. AFA at the Core podcast are available at AFR.net. Back to AFA at the Core on American Family Radio. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Walker Wildman. This is AFA at the Core. As you just heard there, you can catch our podcast at AFR.net or by going to the AFR app. On the line with us, we have our good friend Rick Green talking about the Convention of States. Jumping right back into this, Rick. Um, yeah. When you, let's say that, uh, you mentioned we already have 14, did you say 14 or 15 states that have signed on to this? 15 so far. 15 so far. So let's say, theoretically, in the future, at some point, um, you get enough, you get 34 states to to agree on this convention of states. Um, Let's say they propose an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and then you said it goes back to all 50 states. Do all 50 states have to agree on it, or can the 34 agree on it and it become an amendment? At that point, the magic number is 38. So you have to have 38 states say yes, and both chambers have to say yes, uh, other than, of course, Nebraska that's unicameral has just one chamber. But um, So if, if you know, let's say in Texas, if the House says no, but the Senate says yes, that, that amendment is dead as far as that state's concerned. So if and, and this has been the big concern, and honestly, you know, I've been I've been an advocate of this for about oh man, eleven years now, ever since we started my constitution classes in 2010. But um, before that, honestly, I was leery of it, and and I was leery of it because I was afraid of the old runaway convention 
mm-hmm. you know, um, idea that, that somehow they would do some crazy stuff at the convention. They get rid of the Second Amendment or whatever crazy thing. Like like Congress um, is doing now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Congress and the courts are doing now, right? That everything people are afraid could happen at a convention, they're doing it in D.C. right now, and we have no say whatsoever, no voice at all. But I used to be afraid of that because I didn't understand the safety valve that that the founders designed. And when I realized that if, if a bad amendment, if the convention went went crazy, which is slim to none chance, because when when you're when your legislators are sent to this convention, they're given marching orders. And if they come back having done something opposite of what they said they were were going to do, well, then the legislature back home is not going to approve what they did. So so it's kind of a it, it's a dead end. So I don't think any of that stuff would happen. But even if it did, even if you had these crazy amendments, you only need one chamber in 13 different states to kill that bad amendment. Yes. Now, that also means it's going to be really hard to ratify good amendments, right? It's not, this is, this is not going to be an easy process, which is good because you don't want to amend the Constitution unless it's you know overwhelming majority in the country. And that's why I don't think any of the amendments will be issue oriented. In other words, we, we won't get a life amendment as much as I'd love to. Those type of things won't get passed. They'll all be process and structure amendments. In other words, who has the power to answer, to, you know, to, to decide things and how do you overrule the Supreme Court more easily? Yeah. Um, you know, term limits, like you mentioned, that's a process um, uh, issue that could pass and I think probably would pass at a convention and be ratified in the in the states. And for me, I'd love to see term limits or even a set term for federal judges. This this whole idea of lifetime appointments is not what the founders envisioned and has been a real bad, you know, it has produced a really bad, unaccountable situation, especially with the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, that's funny. You mentioned about your prior hesitancy over a decade ago on the runaway convention uh, concern or theory. Uh, I actually I actually was on your colleague and our good friend David Barton's website on wall builders earlier, and he was even writing in his, uh, this is a 2016 posting on the wall builders website, uh, but he, David himself was even talking about uh, his prior concerns uh, about this, but how he's now fully on board with the convention of states movement. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of checks and balances there. Uh, just like, uh, for example, let's say you get 34 states to go and agree on a proposed amendment. Uh, well, then they've got to get 38 states out of 50 to agree, uh, both chambers in all those states to agree to the amendment. So that's a lot of of room there for if something bad were occurring, uh, where it could be intercepted. So uh, I would actually, and the, and- yeah, I, I would propose that there's more accountability and checks and balances there than what we have now with our Congress Amen. and our executive branch. That's it. No, you you just nailed it. I mean, right now because they are not limiting themselves by the Constitution itself, right? So if they were just following the Constitution, what it says on paper, they wouldn't be doing all these crazy things that they're doing. Um, and because of that, they are a runaway, ongoing convention. They have no limits. They do whatever they want. There's no limitation on the federal government right now. And and some people say, well, Rick, does that mean then that if you amend the Constitution, they're going to ignore the amendment? Well, the answer is no. We've never had a situation in 27 amendments where the government ignored an amendment. Once the amendment is in place, they'll follow it. Now, it may be 50 years from now, they may you know be chipping away at it if you yeah. get back to a situation where the court is able to you know completely modify what the Constitution actually says. But for some period of time, those amendments absolutely will be implemented and the federal government will have to follow them. And it's the only way, honestly. I mean, I, I know this sounds 
you know, like I'm, I'm hyperbole or whatever, but I, I have come to the conclusion that we can't save the country if we don't do this because the federal government is just completely out of control. I mean, anybody that's paying any attention right now realizes the system is broken. Washington, D.C. is broken. We've got to fix the system. And there are ways to do that. The founders gave us the tools. It's simply getting back to first principles and getting back to the idea of limited government and drawing the line in the sand as far as what the authority of the federal government should be. Let me ask you one more question, and then we'll let you go. Uh, there's There's been talk amongst the conservative movement, uh, amongst even people who are, are studied up on the Constitution, there's been debate at times as to whether a governor or a or some kind of uh, elected official or body can ignore a judge. And when I say ignore a judge, I'm talking about especially these these local uh, these these district judges uh, that 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 make rulings that in many cases, in some cases, are unconstitutional rulings. Do you think that that thought process, that that strategy, we haven't seen it done uh, except for, the Biden administration now ignoring Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court when it comes to this eviction moratorium, uh, because the Supreme Court said y'all need to be done with this eviction moratorium, talking about the CDC. Yeah. But they instead yeah. continued it despite what the Supreme Court said, uh, which is clearly ignoring the Supreme Court's ruling. Um, do you think that 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 strategy of potentially ignoring a federal court judge and carrying on with a law? is is a is a good way of thinking or do you think that's a dangerous track i i think i think we had to be really careful but i think that absolutely there's a time to do that you know that's the old andrew jackson thing that's a nice opinion you got there court let me see you enforce it and and that's part of the problem is we've given such deference to the courts that even when they're outside their boundaries we're unwilling to say no so i absolutely think states should be able to say um, that's a crazy decision or that's a crazy law passed by Congress and we're going to appeal it. We're going to fight it all the way to the Supreme Court and we're going to fight it in a convention of states and use the Constitution to overturn it. And while we're fighting it, we will not allow that to be implemented in our state. Um, that's the ultimate, you know, some people call it state nullification. I'm not for single state nullification, you know, just kind of willy nilly on its own, mm -hmm. but I am for states being able to band together and say, that is not a constitutional law. That is not a, the, the supremacy clause in article six says in pursuance thereof. So it's got to be in pursuance thereof of the constitution. It's got to follow the constitution. And if it doesn't, I think a state has every right to say, you know, we're going to appeal that. And while we're appealing it, we will not follow it. We're not going to implement that. We're not going to use our state resources to, and I'm talking about things like, you know, some of these gun grab laws. And, and, uh, I would have done that even with the, uh, Oberfeld case. I think, I think governor should have said, Hey, we're telling clerks in our state, you cannot implement uh, any other form of marriage than man and a woman, as we've done for 6,000 years. And we're going to fight this thing, not only not just through the Supreme Court, but through a state run convention of states to overturn this very bad decision by the Supreme Court. Yeah, because you have you have legislative bodies in certain cases and then in other cases, actual constitutional limits in those states that stated clearly the opposite of Obergefell. I mean, there's nothing yeah. more uh, representative and de democratic and American than the people voting on an amendment in their state, speaking to what how they want policy run. Uh, that is not uh, anarchic or uh, out of control. That's perfectly in line with the will of the people. Hey, Rick, you're you're heading up this uh, biblical citizenship and modern America training uh, that you're having about every two months. Uh, some of them are live courses. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Man, it's one of the one of the things that gives me hope right now. When you look at the chaos in our country, and you look at all the negative and and the you know, literally the cracks in the foundation of our culture and the rot in our culture, uh, the good news is that that has awakened so many people across the country. And we've seen we're we're now at eight thousand five hundred Constitution coaches that are hosting these classes all over the nation right now in churches and homes. Um, and then we're doing a Monday night class, kind of a group national class that so we have about. 30,000 people in um, where we actually watch the videos together and then talk about it. And I do live Q and a, or David Barton will come on or, or uh, uh, Mark Meckler or Pete Hegseth, different people come on and, and uh, give, give folks a chance to ask questions. So it's a really good fellowship, really good learning. And, and Walker, I think it's critical that we as believers understand that balance of following biblical commands on how to form our societies, how to treat each other, all those things. And we understand our constitution in this country so that we know how to be a biblical citizen in this particular system. Um, that's the only way we can be truly good salt and light in our neighborhoods and in our in our states. And so that's what this class is all about. Excellent. Where can folks go? What's your URL where folks can go and find out more? Biblicalcitizens.com biblicalcitizens.com. All right, Rick, God bless you, man. We'll talk soon. Walker, God bless you, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. Keep up the good work. That's Rick Green of the Torture Freedom Foundation, also founder of Patriot Academy, which we sponsor here at American Family Association each year. I'm an alumni of Patriot Academy, and Rick is doing some excellent, excellent work training up uh, the next generation. So we'll have him on again soon. So there you go. That's uh, Rick Green's uh, view of the Convention of States. He views it as a good idea. Uh, it's it's rooted in the Constitution, Article 5, and it uh, would help uh, rein in much of the uh, federal government and their out-of-control uh, spending, their out-of-control ruling, and their out-of-control edicts that we see day in and day out. Bobby, what do you think about that? Rick is always a, a wealth of knowledge. Every time, <laughs> every time he either guest hosts or calls in or uh, just uh, graces us with his presence, it's uh, it's always mind-boggling. My education rate skyrockets. <laughs> <laughs> mine too, Bobby. Mine too. Uh, there you have it, folks. That's Rick Green uh, of uh, Patriot Academy talking about the Convention of States, and I'll actually post uh, a David Barton. Uh, write up on the uh, Convention of States, his view of it. I will, we will post that at our podcast page at AFR.net. It is uh, simply titled an Article 5 Convention of States, and David Barton from Wall Builders, will, uh, he writes extensively about it in that paper. So we'll post that at AFR.net under the AFA at the Core podcast page for today's uh, broadcast. I came across this uh, report, uh, this economic report from today on consumer sentiment. You know, many of the indicators that we're seeing across the country when it comes to the economy uh, are very reminiscent of 07, 08 and the market crash, the uh, housing market crash, the economic crash that happened in 08. Well, this is, is, is another uh, consumer, this is dealing with consumer sentiment, which is another metric uh, as to how the economy is going, how consumers feel about the economy. Well, uh, here's the here's the report. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index fell to 70.2 from the end of July score of 81.2. So over a 30-day period, it fell 11 points. This is the lowest score since 2011. This is a quote from uh, the survey's chief economist, Richard Curtin. He says consumers reported a stunning loss of confidence in the first half of August. Uh, 
The score was lower than the 71.8 hit at the depths of the pandemic lockdown in April 2020. He goes on to say that over the past half century, the sentiment index has only recorded larger losses in six other surveys, all connected to sudden negative changes in the economy. The only larger declines in the sentiment index occurred during the economy's shutdown in April 2020 and at the depths of the Great Recession in October 2008, Curtin explained in a statement. Uh, the report goes on to say that the loss of confidence was, quote, widespread across income, age, and education subgroups and observed across all regions. Moreover, the losses covered all aspects of the economy from personal finances to prospects for the economy including inflation and unemployment. So uh, despite Biden claiming before he was sworn in that he was going to bring about an economic boom, economic prosperity, bring about unity to the country, uh, consumers do not uh, feel that way. That uh, sentiment from the president is not making its way uh, to consumers across the country. So consumer uh, sentiment crashes to lowest level in 10 years. Um, This is not Surprising, Bobby, when you see inflation out here, uh, you see Biden taking all kind of actions to really hamper our economy and the growth thereof. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really starting to affect the consumer uh, at the consumption level specifically. Uh, you're starting to see shelves that are empty a little longer than normal uh, that we as Americans have come to be used to. Uh, the shortage of, of supplies, you've got um, a shortage of workers, shortage of resources, and in the coming months, you're going to see these numbers in terms of consumer sentiment get even worse. And uh, I think we covered the per, uh, producer price index yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was about 7%, and that's like one of the, the largest numbers uh, on, on record. So, Yeah, that's the, a key indicator for inflation, which hits uh, middle and low-income families heavily. When it comes to the grocery store and the gas pump. And look, uh, the White House, the National Security Advisor yesterday, Jake Sullivan, said he sent a letter to OPEC, uh, the oil conglomerate, not American, by the way, um, saying we need oil and we need it fast. Well, thanks, Biden, for reducing domestic production. Now we need foreign oil to run our cars and our machines. AFA at the core, Walker Wildman. We'll see you next time. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.